Alex Mosette, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. I'm very excited that for the first time, we have our first guest appearance from my colleague, Tree Tran. Uh, Tree is joining us from San Francisco. Hello, Tree. Hey, pleasure to be here. So uh, we're going to talk about Grubhub, and Tree has a good amount of familiarity with the topic because um, Tree founded and or co-founded and uh, was formerly CEO of a company that many of you probably know of called Munchery, uh, raising over $100 million for that business. And uh, why don't you describe uh, what Munchery's business model was, Tree? Yeah, Munchery started out as a platform connecting uh, chefs and cooks who would cook home-style meals and connecting them with consumers who are looking for that kind of food. Uh, and we deliver them as well. You're definitely familiar with the food space. Food industry is a tough industry. Um, it is. <laughs> yeah, and, and the other thing that's really tough about the food industry is you don't get to take off any holidays because those are your busiest times of year, right? So, I mean, you can't go and take regular vacation cycles in that in that space. Not even to mention the ultra low margins, the lossage because it's a perishable good and all those other right. fun aspects of the business. Right. <laughs> but we have some activity now where this article from the Wall Street Journal today says that Grubhub is considering strategic options, including the possible sale um, of the business. And the you know this comes a few months after in end of October on their this must be their last quarterly call. Yeah, their last quarterly earnings call. Uh, we covered this on the show. How uh, the CEO, I think Matt, is it Matt Maloney? Um, mm -hmm. Matt Maloney. Said, hey, basically, at, if starting in, I think, their August 2019 cohort analysis, their new and existing customers, they could see their user behavior changing because basically he was blaming Uber Eats and DoorDash and Caviar and Postmates and all the competition for flooding the market with all these, basically just lighting money on fire, putting all these promos in. They were seeing what used to be a strong customer loyalty, strong kind of recurring customer usage. They saw that starting to deteriorate and that was very concerning for them. Uh, so they said, we basically need to have a wholesale change to our strategy and we need to aggressively compete on similar terms with Uber Eats and all these other large players, um, namely to go after non-partner restaurants and have non-partner supply, which is basically much more expensive for Grubhub to support that. Um, and But they had to do it because they needed they needed to... Uh, provide the optionality and and the offerings that their customers wanted so they would stay loyal to Grubhub and not go to other platforms uh, which had maybe a wider array of supply. There's other things that he talked about as the reason why they had to do it. But basically they were saying, we need to go spend a lot of money rolling out this new model, new salespeople, uh, you know, discounts and promos. We need to, we're also going to make a lot less money or maybe break even, maybe lose some money having to work with non-partner restaurants. Basically, it's going to break their business model or certainly have a big change to their business model. Um, and now what? 
not even three months later, they this news has leaked that they've engaged with um, a banker to or a financial advisor to review potential moves, uh, which could include a sale of the company. So what do you make of all of this tree? Yeah, um, it's definitely exciting time. I mean, you mentioned Uber Eats, right? It, Uber Eats is really giving a lot of these companies a, a big run for their money. Uh, essentially, companies like Uber can, uh, I think as you have covered in the past, um, can leverage their existing uh, driver workforce in, in multiple ways, right? So when not driving people, these people, these drivers can deliver products and vice versa. And then on top of that, you know, Uber has the investment capital and now being a public company and thus they can invest and outlast a lot of these companies. Um, over the holiday breaks, I was in Vietnam. And there, Uber has exited, but Grab is the number one player. And I can see Grab executing the exact same strategy, right? Most restaurants, tea shops, whatever I visited, were filled with Grab drivers waiting for the order to finish so that they can go and deliver uh, to the customers. And over there, Motorbytes makes it easy to go around and labor is way less expensive. So yeah, uh, it was a... a, a um, um, kind of like a deja vu that I was like, whoa, oh my goodness, that's exactly how this should be done. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was, uh, that, that's my first reaction when, when I saw that. Um, Grubhub started out as a strictly just a digital platform that a restaurant can take orders digitally, you know, versus a, a phone call and whatnot. And it was set up so that restaurant can fulfill such orders on their own including delivery. Grubhub didn't have to touch the, the, the food products at all. It's just a two-sided marketplace, just yeah. the customer and the restaurant. Correct. And, but then they soon realized that was not enough, right? They would have to provide delivery service and workforce to compete with Uber Eats and DoorDash and Postmate. Um, but yeah, that, I think that came a little too late. Uh, by, by now, uh, or by the time that they roll out such a workforce, uh, Uber Eats and DoorDash and the lights have already taken a strong foothold. Um, so yeah, no, that's, uh, that, that's the, the history there. Um, I mean, even DoorDash would have trouble competing with Uber Eats because they don't do people delivery, you know, like the taxi <laughs> like service that the Uber is well known for. Um, but at least they're competing for at least the number two spot. Uh, and thus they have successfully raised what over 2 billion, I believe. Um, yep, you know, 2.1. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great going. Uh, so yeah, to me, uh, it's it's the number one and number two uh, that that is really going to take place well in the U.S. Here, you mentioned Postmates as well. Uh, they also raise a lot of money, not as much. What nine hundred million or something like that? Uh, I think the issue with Postmates, and I've met Bashins and and folks like that in the past too, is their their lack of focus, uh, at least originally, right? They started before DoorDash and Uber Eats, but they started out as a general purpose uh, delivery platform. Deliver anything, furniture, whatever you needed to deliver. Uh, but of course, it ended up that food delivery is the highest frequency use. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> uh, highest consuming uh, products. Uh, and so lack of that initial focus made it harder for them to change and adapt and become top of mind for food and beverage. Well, you know what's interesting? Hey, look, this is still on Crunchbase. This is their description. Postmates powers local on-demand logistics focused on fast deliveries from any type of merchant at scale. Mm -hmm. So it's 
They got to go update this uh, this Crunchbase description because uh, it, it's exactly your point. might still do that today, point. but it's just very low frequency for anything non-food and beverage related. I am that sure about that. Right. And especially when we what we saw with Grub, I mean, they've, they're a profitable company, but what they really attribute that is they're having a, a really strong lock-in with the supplier back to the consumer, and they're able to make money from the supplier that's also paying them because they see this as a valuable part of, you know, increasing demand for the restaurant uh, partner restaurant business. So it's much more than just saying, I'm going to, I'm going to just kind of like go in over the top and let you order uh, products from any store, including restaurants. And, and what you find, I think if you actually did a, I wonder if Grubhub is actually publishing this. I feel like Grubhub's prices are actually less. If you were to compare the same restaurant, um, and if that restaurant's a partner restaurant on Grubhub to say it's on Postmates or it's on one of these other platforms, Uber Eats, um, I'm willing to bet that Grubhub more often than not is is the cheaper solution uh, than these other platforms that might have a wider array but they net net are actually more expensive, uh, assuming they don't give you some crazy discount promo code or something like that. I've seen that anecdotally. I haven't seen any research to back that up, but I feel like it kind of speaks to the model that they were working on, which was profitable for them, but had restraints, which ultimately allowed them to get outpaced from a size and a scale standpoint. As you were saying, um, uh, DoorDash, Last summer, this is pre-WeWork debacle, uh, was valued at over around $12 billion. So even if you give them a post-WeWork haircut in valuation, because they're certainly losing money, um, Grubhub today is valued at $5 billion. I don't think DoorDash has lost $7 billion in value just because of WeWork having a ridiculous uh, target IPO price and trying to pull the wool over everyone's eyes. But um, certainly Grubhub is no is not in the top two. I don't know where Postmates, I don't know where, where you know, probably maybe Postmates and, and Grubhub are kind of neck and neck. So let's, let's play this out. You know these uh, founders, the guys running these companies. Um, do you think that one of the large one or two players would gobble up a Grubhub, um, or do you think that a, a kind of like Postmates Grubhub would do a merger um, rather than one of the big players buying the smaller player? Uh, wh- what do you think? Well, if if some kind of action does happen, what do you think would make the most sense here? I mean, I, I don't know if it makes sense for, let's say, a Grubhub to join force with a Postmates. I mean, like DoorDash acquire a caveat to basically enhance their restaurant offering, right? Caviar started out only delivering for fancy restaurants. Um, and that's a great starting point, by the way. They should have expanded quickly and, you know, deliver for everybody. <laughs> uh, but anyways, I don't know if it makes sense for Grubhub to join force uh, with, with like a Postmate or something like that. I think a more strategic acquisition like, you know, I'm just making this up, right? What if an existing powerhouse like Walmart decide, hey, I want to get into this game. I want to own my own delivery platform. I don't want to rely on uh, 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 an existing one. I don't want to be just, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
sitting duck if something goes wrong with that company and I want to run my own thing, uh, that may be a good, a good thing to explore, right? Only time will tell. And if they get a company like Grubhub in, in desperations uh, of, of an acquisition, they can get it for a good price. Um, but yeah, no, I've, um, uh, I, I, I've met Bastion and talked to Matt in the past. And I, you know, I know it, how hard it is to, for, for these guys to deal with being a third you know, or fourth spot uh, on this winner take all kind of dynamic. It's really rough. Uh, so yeah, that's my that's my guess is probably more valuable that they become a, a, a strategic acquisition versus you know just number three, number four joining together doesn't necessarily beat number two. Um, it, it's way harder. You know, I feel like like what about? I mean, I could see a strategic acquisition from. I mean, this is really what a a McDonald's, a, mm -hmm. you know, Burger King, you know, fill in the blank, massive restaurant chain, uh, conglomerate of multiple restaurant chains owning the platform that determines where you're going to order food, what restaurant you're going to order food from. You would think that if you were these ultra large restaurant chain CEOs, that you would want to try and own the distribution in this thing called delivery. Um, we basically saw McDonald's build Uber Eats. I think McDonald's accounted for at, at its peak, maybe around 10% of all the supply on Uber Eats. We covered on the show that Uber Eats global expansion was entirely built on the back of McDonald's. And I think all McDonald's got out of that deal was preferential terms on pricing from Uber. They should have gotten equity in Uber for the amount of supply and yeah. value that they were helping that platform in, in solving that chicken and egg problem. Um, so that was a massive blunder, but like a, a Walmart, obviously grocery is super big for Walmart, Amazon now as well, Target as well. But you think one of these like big box retailers would be interested in getting to, I mean, it just seems like a very expensive proposition if now one of those folks needs to, fund Grubhub's business model departure or fund basically these initiatives um, and probably put more fuel on the fire for Grubhub to move more aggressively. I guess, yeah, if there's some kind of strategic tie-up, but I, it, it, yeah, I mean, I, you think like something like that or like these uh, restaurant chains, even though I guess they, they kind of have missed the boat on that in the past. Maybe they have a change yeah. of heart. It, it would take a, a, a giant like, like a McDonald's, right? I think uh, other restaurant chain, even if they have 100 stores, it's not enough to, to be worthwhile for them to spend that much money to acquire something like this. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like that's probably a better outcome, um, uh, at least an, a better outcome that can be useful for, for that large chain or that large brand. Because Grubhub did a roll-up many years ago when they bought or they merged with seamless web. Mm -hmm. I don't think many people remember that. Um, and then I think they, they sunset, they, they wound down the seamless web app, but you don't think it would be too accretive for some kind of merger, a DoorDash Grubhub tie up um, in the same way that why DoorDash did a caviar deal. Just like how we think about this, right? I still feel for these guys to merge with, competitors with themselves, 
the idea would be to create that endless selection of restaurants and bars and whatever food and beverages, right? That's, that's the ultimate goal. So if they're going to join force, if they can achieve that in a way that win over customers' mindset, that, hey, that's the go-to place that has everything. And it's fast, gets me to me fast, right? And predictably, and I can see it on a map, just like the Uber cars. Uh, that's what they need to get to. And that's a pretty tall mountain to climb with, you know, regarding where DoorDash and, and Uber Eats are today. Uh, they're already basically hit, hitting that. So, so to me, that's, that kind of mindset win over is going to be a, a tough battle. Yeah, what value does it, what value does a DoorDash get from a Grubhub? Yeah. Um, cuz they already have more supply. They have basically they the same supply, if not a lot more. Right, they already have more supply. They might have a, a probably do have a more fully baked delivery network. What about like a Lyft Grubhub? Right. So if Lyft wanting to get into this game, uh, they can try and fast track that with with this food cuz Lyft obviously doesn't do food delivery today. Uh, and if, if that's, you know, where they strategically decide to do that, okay, I can see how that can help them get a fast start. Yeah, I see that. I, I, I see, I could, I could see a Lyft Grubhub. I could see a consortium of restaurants, but that's probably has about a zero zero point zero 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 one percent chance. And then it makes sense to me why the. You, if, if you're one of the bigger players, you're not really getting that much value out of it because um, you probably have more supply. You might have a better delivery capability anyway, like a DoorDash. Um, so, man, I mean, I actually don't see that many options for who would see this as like a, a great strategic option to go buy Grubhub um, and Certainly, this news does not help them. You like you think some some disgruntled banker who didn't get to represent uh, Grubhub leaked this? I mean, I, this seems like a really really bad. Despite their stock um, bouncing and and going up based on the news, it it just strategically, at least in terms of their competitors uh, having this information. Right. Um, it just seems like a, a pretty big blunder. Who knows? Your guess is as good as mine on how the news is leaked, but definitely signaling that uh, they're they're concede. You know, they're, they're saying, "Hey, I'm not making it uh, in in this game." Uh, the game is is who can hold their breath the longest. <laughs> so uh, obviously, yeah. this this clearly show that I'm running out of air. Yeah, and 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 I guess you know this also speaks to the challenge of them being a public company um, uh, and, and a smaller player in a winner take all market as a public company, as maybe the number three slash number four player, maybe they're tied for third um, player. And this, this article speaks to them being concerned about an activist investor coming in and, and, and causing trouble for them. And I don't know what the activist investor is going to bring to the table other than forcing a sale, but then you're back in the same boat. What, what are you going to do to force a sale that's really going to actually be accretive to the stock? I don't know. I'm struggling to see it. I like your analogy that this is basically just who can hold their breath the longest. This also speaks to our point about the power of platform conglomerates yep. that we're seeing with Uber. 
I've been bullish on Uber for a long time. You can now see, as you're talking about, the synergies between the ride-sharing business flowing over into the uh, you know food delivery business, food marketplace delivery business, and how those things, as you stack kind of one network on top of the other, you get these compounding network effects. It's a big deal. Uh, and when you can see a platform conglomerate coming into existence and creation, that's a very different beast than one big platform or the number two platform like a Lyft, for example, um, which doesn't have this ability to have multiple different networks playing off of each other. It just gives you a lot more optionality. I think it gives you, in general, a lot more strength. And I mean, we're seeing that with Uber Eats success, um, even though it's still losing money, but they have a path to break even, according to Dara. And um, we're certainly seeing the pain here with Grub and, and other players. I think we also covered maybe a few weeks ago, Postmates, there's some leaked information about Postmates, thinking about even a direct listing of sorts or these kinds of things. So, oof, yeah, it's it. It's a tough place to be. It's a tough place to be. I wish them the best. Yeah. Okay. Thanks so much, Tree. Thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you for having me. What do we have next? Amazon. So Amazon just announced that they are getting into luxury fashion. Uh, according to industry sources, Amazon will launch luxury via a concession model, starting with the U.S. market. They've tried this a few times. And uh, there's a couple other players in luxury. One is the Real Real from San Fran. Um, they uh, they've they've raised about three hundred. Well, they raised about three hundred fifty million dollars. Public company market cap of about one point five billion dollars went public uh, in the summer this of 2019, not this year anymore. And uh, stocks down. I don't know, about 40% from their IPO price. The other company in this space is Farfetch. Market cap of about $3 billion. And they went public last, no, two falls ago. This is 2018 fall. Yeah, they actually IPO'd right around a similar share price. Doesn't mean same valuation, but similar share price. And their, um, their stock is down... Yikes, about uh, 60, 65% from where they IPO'd at. So Amazon's coming into town. The consignment model that they speak about basically means it's, it's basically just a take rate, right? It's a consignment, like you list your 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 piece of luxury clothing and, uh, and then the platform will take maybe 20 or 30% take rate uh, when that product sells. It's pretty similar to how Amazon operates on their marketplace, on, on the regular Amazon site with third-party sellers. Uh, this will probably uh, be a separate experience from Amazon. So I could imagine this being, it could even be a separate domain. That might be a stretch, but it's certainly going to be a separate experience. You're probably not going to be able to search for all the same inventory that you could um, when you're in this luxury fashion uh, department, because what you find is that a lot of these luxury designers don't want their products or their brand to be associated with cheaper brands. Uh, this was actually literally, we were just covering this yesterday about Alibaba moving into Europe, and we had multiple uh, 
luxury retailers, a luxury designer manufacturers, oddly enough, saying that they didn't want to list their stuff on Alibaba because it was cheap and it would hurt their brand. There's a really cool story about Farfetch and the real real about how they got supply initially. So the large uh, uh, luxury manufacturers, there's actually a decent amount of consolidation, right? LVMH, there's a lot of these luxury conglomerates. Um, of course, they're not ever going to agree to sell on a marketplace. The linear equivalent, e-commerce equivalent, is this company called Netaporte. Netaporte has done some different mergers and so on and so forth. Large players are invested into Netaporte. Netaporte is the linear equivalent. What does that mean? So, when I buy e-commerce product or when I buy products from a, a large fashion house, what you need to do is you need to agree to buy a product line, which basically means you need to agree to buy the not so hot kind of sexy items that are just going to fly off the shelf. You need to agree to buy stuff that won't sell as well so that you can get access to the really hot selling items. So you're buying, it's kind of like how in music you used to have an album and now you just have singles. And well, they force you to buy the whole album, even though you might only want to listen to two songs on the album, you got to pay for the whole thing. That is what Yuke's Net-A-Porte has to basically deal with and, and do. They need to buy the whole product line. All that product line goes on their balance sheet for all the same reasons that we've spoken about in the past. That business model is a lot less scalable. You're going to have a lot uh, more limited supply on the platform less product choice, less pricing transparency because I just bought these products for X and some stuff isn't going to sell and the stuff that is going to sell, I need to make margin on that to cover the products that aren't selling. You follow me? It's not as strong of a business model as the marketplace model uh, in Farfetch or the Real Real. So Amazon's coming into the space and who is this a big problem for? The traditional incumbent retailers, fashion retailers like a Macy's, uh, they sell a lot of clothes and they have sold clothes in a linear way, right? I buy a product line, but now I'm selling it in my store and now they have e-commerce presence as well. So I think this is, this is the time for a any kind of large fashion retailer, a Macy's and, and elsewhere to seriously look at buying um, a real, real, a far fetch, maybe, maybe a StockX or, or, or some of these sneaker marketplaces, but I think that's a little too niche. Um, but there are a few of these luxury fashion marketplaces, similarly to what we were discussing the tree just now about food and Grubhub and that news. Uh, there's a winner-take-all dynamic. Amazon's coming into the space. Not all the brands are going to want to agree to work directly with Amazon, but here's the problem. How did Farfetch and Real Real get their supply? It wasn't the large fashion houses, right? They want you to buy the whole line. They don't want to just sell the hottest items. They the, the whole point is I have the hottest items, and then you have to buy the whole product line, right? That kind of breaks the fashion house's whole model. So. Um, it's the luxury boutique, independent boutique stores that are able to get inventory from the manufacturers uh, or from distributors 
And then that was actually a lot of the first producers, a lot of the first suppliers on these luxury fashion marketplaces like Real Real and Farfetch were these boutique independent luxury fashion stores. And then they have the inventory. They are selling it through their retail store, but then they'll also put some inventory online. What do they care? Not hurting their brand, right? They're just getting some incremental revenue. And that is the problem with fragmented markets. Believe me, the fashion retail distribution market has plenty of fragmentation. That's why you've seen uh, these marketplaces come into existence. They're not multi, multi, mega, mega, multi-billion dollar companies. Um, so there isn't one super dominant player that is, say, on its way to platform conglomerate status, which is also why I think there's a great opportunity for an acquisition uh, by a, it doesn't even need to be, I mean, Macy's has Bloomingdale's, right? So they have Macy's and then you have the the more luxurious retail lines, right? I mean, all these retailers have done this themselves where you kind of have the mainline store and then you might have a, a smaller, more luxurious, uh, complimentary brand. This stuff has been done before. So it makes sense to embrace the marketplace model now. Amazon's coming into the space, which means that you're just going to have that much more leverage with supply because Believe me, these luxury fashion houses, the last thing that they want to do is go help Amazon. We've, they've seen this story play out, play out. They've seen Nike leave. They've seen that this is kind of the beginning of the end if they all now pile on the Amazon bandwagon. So they want to do whatever they can to not uh, get onto Amazon. So this, I think, presents actually a great opportunity for a traditional uh, you know, fashion or clothing retailer to preempt or or deploy their own marketplace strategy in earnest aggressively by making an acquisition in the space and then appealing to the manufacturers to work with them rather than the big bad devil and Amazon. Uh, and I think they'll have a pretty compelling pitch and will also be able to strengthen a real real a far fetch with their existing. Uh, uh, store distribution with their existing buying power. And now it starts to get really interesting where now you can actually go to a lot of these uh, suppliers and manufacturers with a bundled strategy of we'll buy some stuff, but we want you to put supply into the marketplace as well. You just have a much more compelling uh, value prop with your suppliers because you also have the retail presence. So it starts to get really interesting, I think, if we see a play like that. If it's just Amazon here on their own, you don't have a big enough independent tech marketplace competitor, I think, to, to strongly thwart Amazon's ability to get traction or, or potentially be successful. They've tried this before. They've learned their lesson. We saw this with Amazon Business, where they launched Amazon Supply five or six years prior. They learned a lot from Amazon Supply. They exited Amazon Supply a couple of years later, then they launched Amazon Business. Now, that was three years ago. Amazon Business is now a $10, $20 billion GMB business for Amazon, growing very aggressively. And Amazon's a sharp cookie. They've learned if they're coming at this again, this, this, this better be taken seriously. And I think it should suggest to the other retail uh, uh, you know, clothing incumbents to seriously entertain going 
much more aggressively down a marketplace path for their own good. So on that note, let's look at Platt. Platt, a month in review. So the stock market has gone bonkers the past month. And I like to, on my own, I just continuously kind of benchmark and track uh, Platt's performance versus other comparable uh, indexes. So the orange line here is the S&P 500. SPY is the index that you can follow for the S&P 500. Um, In the past month, that's gone up 4.1%. That's pretty great for one month of growth. The light blue teal line is the uh, Wisdom Tree Cloud Index. So that's all these kind of cloud companies. You could have SaaS companies in there. You could have some platform companies in there. The green line, so that went up 6.6% Wisdom Tree Cloud. 7.3% is QQQ. QQQ is the NASDAQ 100. Um, so NASDAQ in general is, is a very tech-friendly exchange. So these are the top 100 companies on the NASDAQ. It's very uh, heavily weighted towards tech. 8.3% is XLK. It's kind of disruptive technologies. You have you have tech in here, but you also have like semiconductor uh, companies in here. You have, it's a much broader version of definition of tech. It's kind of like hardware tech as well as software tech. Definitely a bunch of linear companies in here. Um, the closest one is IYW, which is the red at 8.7% in the past month. Pretty phenomenal. Uh, IYW is one of the largest kind of just tech sector. Uh, I think it's a, I think it's a, like a, uh, I don't know. It's, it's one of the big investment houses, uh, funds, like not a fidelity, but like a BlackRock or I don't know. One one of these big, uh, funds, uh, this is their index, IYW tech sector index, not just platforms, but there's, you know, linear. SaaS companies in here as well. And then you have Platt, 8.9%. Um, really in the past couple weeks, was it was kind of running neck and neck. And then past couple weeks, um, it, it broke away from the competition here. And I mean, it's, it's uh, like 20 basis points difference between uh, Platt's performance and IYW's performance in the past month. But it's interesting to just continue to track this when you compare it to the S&P 500, which is, you know, a much broader index. Um, We've tracked how many platform companies are in the S&P 500. It's it's about maybe 21 or 22 platform companies uh, that are in Plat and the S&P 500. So there's some overlap here, but uh, pretty interesting to see how these things perform. Um, and uh, benchmark against one another. So we'll continue to follow that and do more analysis on you know why that is. Certainly tech has just done well in general, but you're starting to see these platform companies break away from the pack. Um, also some of the Chinese platform companies, especially with some of the trade deals, that, those kinds of things. Um, even though the trade deal doesn't directly, say, thwart any of the, of the companies in Plat. Generally, the Chinese-U.S. trade deal was viewed to slow growth in both countries until it was agreed upon. So now that growth is back, then some of those platform companies were able to benefit. I think Platt has around like 15, 20% representation of 
Chinese uh, tech platform companies. So interesting stuff there. Last one here is a, a, a preview of our platform design toolkit. Now, um, when you go on our website, applicoinc.com, you can sign up for our newsletter and then you get this platform design toolkit. Basically, what's in the toolkit is uh, an analysis of the, uh, our platform business model canvas, which helps you understand, you know, this is the relationship of producers and consumers, the core transaction. These are all the different components of platform business model. You can kind of use it as a, uh, a worksheet or a, a working session that you can do and you can map out different potential platform businesses based on this canvas. Uh, we also include glossary of all the platform terms, uh, which is actually probably pretty pretty good for watching this show. Uh, but these are all the major terms that we use in the book, Modern Monopolies, Metcalf's Law. You can get really nerdy with it if you enjoy this kind of stuff, which we do because we're platform nerds. Uh, all the different platform types. It's a good little cheat sheet, right? Uh, and then we have a bunch of slides here, Platform Thinking 101. It kind of takes you through the written version, kind of like the abridged version of here's a platform business, definition of a platform business, what's not a platform business, oh, linear business. What are linear businesses? What are examples of linear businesses? Um, this is from the book, our different types of platforms. This is a, a, a oh, this is an interesting analysis of platform businesses in the S&P 500. Um, and it takes you through the strengths, why platforms are strong, why they're much stronger than linear companies, how the business models are different from one another, commoditized, non-commoditized, uh, value exchanges. We talk about Walmart and a sample exercise that you can do with that business model canvas. So looking at how Walmart is changing itself to become a platform, which we've covered a lot on the show, but it takes you through an exercise here that you can do with a team. Uh, if you are now analyzing, say, how to create your own platform business or how to evolve a, a linear business into a platform business. So um, this takes you through a sample exercise using Walmart and then gives you uh, six different steps here that you can take yourself through for running that exercise on your own. This is then doing that and lining up that exercise, kind of putting that all into the platform business canvas. So it's a crash course in platform information, linear information, what's the difference? And then also letting you go and do exercises with you or in a team environment to go and put your thoughts to the test or put a group's thoughts to the test and see how that would line up in a platform business model. Uh, and how that could all come together. So if you want this, go to our website, fill in your email, and you'll be able to get uh, all of these documents. You'll get our newsletter, our weekly newsletter, and then you get a bunch of graphics that we have, um, like our platform symbol here and these kinds of things as well. So uh, hope you enjoy that. Thanks for joining us today on Winner Take All. We will talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.